Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and this week I'm going to talk about the things we often overlook when we start planning our over-the-road whitetail hunts. Last week, I covered the fine-tuning aspects of really taking your ambush sites to the next level, and I think that's something in the deer game that just doesn't get a whole lot of love, but should. And I think March is a great month to do that kind of stuff. I also think it's a great month to start working on your over-the-road whitetail trips. Now, we all know about some of the stuff involved in this, right? Like researching tags and e-scouting. But there's a hell of a lot of other details that don't seem all that important now until you get like six hours down the road and start setting up camp somewhere. And that's what I'm going to talk about this week, my friends. Last year, one of our neighbors walked past our house with her little boy and a puppy. And when you have twin girls in middle school, a fresh puppy sighting is pretty big news. Now, the next time that neighbor walked by, we all went outside to greet the new dog. It was an eight-week-old doodle of some sort. Now, I'm a dog guy, so I love most canines, even the ones that don't really have a job quite like a, I don't know, a German short hair or a lab mite. Now, this pup, Lola, She wasn't meant to be a worker, only a good family dog. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But I don't know, without sounding like too much of an ass, I'm usually pretty suspicious of popular breeds. I've talked about this a lot, so I won't go into it too much. But in the dog world, breeds rise and fall in popularity. And that means demand rises. And when it does, prices go up. And folks try to bulk up the supply by producing more puppies. Now, if this is a fidget spinner or something, I guess it's not a big deal. But if it's a living, breathing animal that has to be bred in a certain way, it certainly can be. The doodle craze, just like the golden retriever craze in the 70s and 80s, or more recently the French bulldog or Belgian Malinois craze, tends to create some questionable breeding. Now, people hear about pups going for three or four grand a pop or more than they do the math on the average litter size, and pretty soon they are shopping for private islands and yachts. But breeding just to produce more dogs of a certain breed often has disastrous effects on health and temperament. This is not much different than breeding for a certain color of dog or a specific look. When you place aesthetics as more important than health or simply quantity of pups over quality, bad results are on their way. Unfortunately, those bad results often don't show until the checks are cashed and the dog has wormed its way into the family and a few years have passed since the puppy purchase. Now, I'm not saying you can't get an amazing dog in a popular breed or that you couldn't end up with an incredible Labrador retriever even if your primary criteria when looking for one is that you want a brown dog or a red one. You certainly can. I'm just saying it's a buyer beware situation if you're going after a super popular breed without digging into the bloodlines. Well, our neighbor didn't do that, and I don't blame her. She didn't know any better. And she also had a plan to train the dog, which sounded pretty good when she told me about it. She had the pup enrolled in classes at a dog training center. She had bought plenty of puppy training supplies, and it all sounded pretty good on paper. Fast forward to a few weeks ago when I was heading down the road to shovel my neighbor's driveway during the 917th blizzard of this winter. It was then, fighting the stupid dumbass snow that I hate with a fury of 10,000 suns, that I realized I hadn't seen my neighbor with the pup in quite a while. One quick text later and I found out that she became too much to handle and they had to give that puppy away. This isn't an uncommon story in the dog world but it is one that could often be avoided with better and more honest planning. And it's not really unlike hunt planning in a few ways. First, there is the big stuff that has to be right, otherwise you're in trouble. This would be where you're planning to go, how to get a tag, and how you'll e-scout or boots on the ground scout your location. That's big stuff, right? Compare that to doing some due diligence on a dog breeder to really understand what kind of a dog you're potentially going to buy. Not breed, mind you, but what kind of a healthy dog should it be? How smart should it be? How athletic? How stubborn? How much prey drive? These kind of things. With hunt planning, we devote a lot of time to the big stuff, the big questions, the sexy stuff like how we should probably hold out for a 150 plus since we're going to be hunting Southern Iowa and it's loaded with giants. Or how much easier it is going to be to leave Georgia and drive up to Ohio to kill a Midwestern toad. We romanticize the trip and we shoot a lot. We book our vacation. We daydream. We immerse ourselves in the notion of what our hunt will go like. And we don't look back. P. 
people do this with dogs, especially with puppies. We think about how fun it will be to always kill a limit of roosters or always have a well-behaved buddy in the house that will snuggle up to us every night. But this glosses over so much of the reality that we are often blindsided by it. Now, one of the things that people often get wrong with hunt planning is how difficult it is to go someplace new and kill a deer, let alone a good buck. It's just hard, really hard. Even in places with high deer densities, plenty of land to roam. Now, you might be thinking, how does acknowledging how hard an over-the-road hunt will be help me plan the hunt better? Well, you're a smart cookie to question that. The thing is, hunting deer is more academic than most of us want to admit. You rarely encounter really dumb people who are good at whitetail hunting. Simply recognizing reality and how difficult of a task it will be helps you get prepared mentally. This is something that might seem overblown in whitetail circles, but is well understood amongst Western hunters. If you think packing a bull elk out of the mountains isn't going to test you, you're probably way wrong. Hell, if you think any average elk hunt isn't going to cause you to think about your life choices in a not-so-great way at one point or another, you're probably way wrong. If you know that going into it, hell, probably, you know, for months ahead of it, that you'll get your mental gear squared away. That's important. It's not so hard to climb a mountain when you've been planning and preparing for it, both physically and mentally, for a long time. For the whitetail hunter, there won't be too many mountains to climb, but there will often be stands to hang, bluffs to climb, rivers to cross, camps to set up and tear down, and lots of shitty weather to sit through. And to be fair, depending on where you hunt, there actually might be some mountains to climb. Now, I'm not saying you should focus solely on the negatives, because that's stupid. But you should be aware of how many of them you'll encounter and build in some contingencies for them. An easy one here is to focus on two regions or two spots in your pre-hunt planning. Now, you know you want to go to a specific piece of public land in Illinois, for example, that you read about on bow hunting forums. And those internet strangers told you that the big bucks are there. The habitat is so thick, only the strongest and the toughest hunters even enter it. And any hunter worth his or her salt should easily be able to kill a Pope and Young buck there if they have enough time during the rut. So you laser in. You figure out where you're going to camp. You have a few stands and a saddle ready to go. You drop a pile of weight points on, you know, ruddy looking hotspots and you figure, I don't know, it's just a matter of time on stand. Then you get there and you realize that about 43 other hunters must have read the same forum thread. You see that the habitat is just woods. It's not a jungle. It's not prohibitively thick. It's just some good old deciduous forest. The kind that, I don't know, just about any random hunter could walk through just fine. Thank you. Okay, that's a setback, but you're going to outwork the competition. So you start sneaking into spots you've marked. They look okay, but after a few days, you realize that the deer are either not really there or they aren't really where you're hunting. The pressure is intense. The rut is the opposite of intense. And the prospect of not only failing to fill your tag but really having a whole lot of fun trying to do it is very real. What do you do? If you don't have a backup plan, you probably keep slapping the ass of that dead horse and wondering why it just won't gallop anywhere else. If you have a well-planned backup spot, 
you move. Plain and simple. Pull up camp, hit the road, and go to your life raft spot. This might seem too simple, but the truth is getting married at one spot is no bueno. I don't know how many times I've driven to some state to hunt public land only to find that my original research was just lacking in some aspect, an aspect that made me either not enjoy the hunt or made me think I wasn't in the game at all, which, not coincidentally, is really unenjoyable. Now, it's important to note that sometimes you can't go all that far away. If you drew a license for a specific unit in a state, you're going to have to stay in that unit. But even then, you need a backup. Even if you only relocate a half hour or an hour away, the world can all change for you. Now, if you can hunt a whole state or a good portion of some state, then having a couple of hours between your plan A and plan B is a real good idea. Driving 100 or 200 miles to a backup spot kind of sucks, but it puts you in a different mindset. And if you've planned for this reality, it's not that big of a deal considering how much you have at stake for an over-the-road hunt. Do yourself a favor and give yourself a real backup option that you have confidence in. And I'm talking about planning this now. Then drill down some of the hunt details that you might be overlooking. A good example of this is food. Last year, I did a few episodes where I talked about my food strategy, but I'll borrow something from the elk world to highlight this in a new way. If you go on your first elk hunt, you undoubtedly research food options. And if you don't, you're bananas, crazy. Since weight is everything to the elk hunter, carrying in light food that is full of calories is kind of a must. This leads us to the freeze-dried, just-add-hot-water kind of meals that are just what you take. They make the most sense. But it also leads us to read about elk hunting superstars and their strategies, which might be to eat, I don't know, almond butter packets all day long, or take bagels and slather them with peanut butter and layer them with strips of bacon, and voila, you have 5,000 calories for each day that don't weigh too much. But then on day three of your hunt, you realize your freeze-dried meals are waging war on your intestinal tract, and you could shit through a screen door from 10 feet away at pretty much any moment of your choosing, and often not really a moment of your choosing. Or you realize you don't really like bagels with peanut butter and bacon for one meal, let alone mm, 21 in a row. You have to find the stuff you want to eat, the stuff that won't make you feel like you just got bitten by a zombie in The Walking Dead. Plan your food for your trips appropriately so that you aren't all that miserable or driven to visit the closest Burger King every day, which might not be that close at all. And what about the things you need to make food? Do you have a tote with a propane stove in it? How about some dishwasher soap and a scrubber? Clean up afterwards. Spatula, can opener, toothpicks, cutting board. What do you need for your trip to have the right kind of meals? And how about your vehicle? I used to drive a truck that just didn't have a very big gas tank. I think it was 24 gallons. I always carried five gallons of extra fuel just in case. Or, I don't know, have you ever had a flat tire on a road trip? It sucks. It happens quite often on hunts because the kind of roads you're driving in and pulling into campgrounds and whatever else. Do you have a can of Fix-A-Flat in there? I know this is probably a dumb question for a lot of people who listen to this, but do you know how to change a tire? Have you ever done it on a muddy road in a rainstorm at 11 at night in a state that is not your home state? What's the status of your spare? 
What do you bring along on your hunt that requires batteries? I try to use headlamps and lighting for my camp that utilize the same size of batteries because it's simpler. That usually gets me to like a bulk package of double A's and triple A's that ride around in the center console of my truck all season long. This saves my ass more often than I care to admit from just general ease of camping to blood trailing issues. Do you have a way to organize all the little stuff that makes up a hunt? You know, release aids, tow ropes, gloves, hats, whatever else would easily be available and easy to find at home, but you kind of need a plan for it when you travel. What about drying out your gear if you get stuck in the rain? If you are in a motel, how will you do that? What about in a tent? What does your boot situation look like? Do you just need a pair of knee-high rubber boots or are you going to go hike for miles to scout and might need a pair of good leathers? How about first aid? Bandages, moleskin for blisters, a little super glue to take care of the cuts from mishandling a broadhead while you drank your seventh Jack and Coke of the night. Do you have some aspirin? Carabiners for your safety harness? A good way to start getting ahead of this stuff is to make a really comprehensive list of everything you use to hunt at home. Then invest in a couple of totes. Then make a list of the camping essentials you need or the stuff you need to get by for a week in a roach motel. Pack efficiently and check that list off as you go. Is there something new you want to buy for the trip? Like, say, a tent? If so, buy that some bitch, and then set it up in your yard. Know what you're getting into with it. Or, I don't know, your sleeping bag or your cot or whatever long before you stash it in the back of your truck and head out for your rutcation. I know this sounds like a pain in the ass, and you could probably just wing it and be fine. You can. I've killed deer on all kinds of hunts, and believe me, I wasn't super prepared for all of them. When the girls were little and my time was as limited as my sleep, I forgot all kinds of stuff when I headed out on trips. I stayed in tents I hated. I've dealt with a pile of flat tires in remote places, and I've grinded out some victories when it wasn't likely, but I've also, you know, taken a couple L's along the way too. I suffered a lot due to my own stupidity and lack of preparation. There's nothing worse than meeting the consequences of your own actions or inactions at any time in life, but it really stings when it's on that trip you've been daydreaming about for months, and then you realize it could go much better, that it could be much more enjoyable, and you could have a better chance of running an arrow through a really good deer if you had just covered a few more of your bases in the pre-trip planning stage, a stage that goes all the way back in time to right now, when it's far more likely you're thinking about turkey hunting or maybe crappie fishing than deer hunting. But just like the eight-week-old adorable puppy that mostly sleeps before it eventually turns into a disobedient toothy nightmare at nine months old, an over-the-road whitetail trip seems so simple and so full of promise in the spring. But it can be a vastly different thing come late November when it hasn't stopped raining for three days and the rut feels non-existent and eating soggy turkey sandwiches with no mayo because you forgot it at home. Sucks. Don't let that happen. Start your planning now and really get into the details of what you'll need to be happy and successful. And tune in next week when I plan to talk about where bucks live and travel and how you can find those spots right now. That's it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundation's podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much. 
If you want more whitetail content, head on over to themeateater.com slash wired, and you can read all kinds of articles from myself, Mark, Alex Gilstrom, Andy May, uh, Dylan Tramp, Bo Martonic, whole bunch of whitetail killers, all kinds of good information there. Please go check it out. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great and i started out with them yanni on the other hand one of my main turkey hunting buddies he loves box calls and what's funny is i'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey so it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.